With the advent of effective vaccines, it feels, we hope, not foolishly, like the pandemic may be coming to an end. But today's guest says the crisis in American public health isn't limited to one particular disease. It's a theme that recurs again and again over the last century in these United States. He's Martin Halliwell, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined all the way from the United Kingdom by Martin Halliwell, a professor of American studies at the University of Leicester. He's also the author of an important new book, American Health Crisis, 100 Years of Panic, Planning, and Politics. Martin, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on today. Well, congratulations on the book. We're going to talk about that at length. But when when we were getting ready for the show, I was I was reading through your bio, and one of the phrases caught my attention. You are an expert, among other things, in health humanities. What are health humanities? Well, they they used to be called medical humanities, but I think that puts too much emphasis on the infrastructure of uh, official medicine, however you want to describe that. So health has a has a larger bandwidth than that so it's about you know health politics in in community life as much as it is about medical systems and, and infrastructures and i think one of the things i'm interested in is how medicine and health work at a federal or, or national and international level but also how they work on the ground on an individual and community level as well so i think health humanity speaks to that broader bandwidth and, and that really, I think, also sets the stage for the conversation about the book, American Health Crisis, 100 Years of Panic, Planning, and Politics. We'll dive into it a little bit, but for the folks who haven't read it yet, why don't you give us sort of that 30,000-foot perspective? Sure. Well, uh, it, the book emerged out of uh, a couple of projects I did on mental health, which is the, the area that I've worked on most during my career. But I was taking 25 or 30 year slices of history, uh, thinking about the way in which mental health policy and the experience of mental health conditions has developed since World War Two. But I wanted in um, American health crisis to take a longer historical perspective, which is why I go back to the beginning of what I think is the modern phase of the public health service in the 1910s and the Woodrow Wilson administration. I want to look at the way in which history has repeated itself, but also what we can learn from history, whether federal governments and administrations take heed of those lessons or not. There's some really important lessons we can learn from different kinds of health crises, which I grouped together. kind of historically, but also thematically uh, during the course of the book. So you you begin with Woodrow Wilson's presidency, as you said, and of course it was during that presidency in 1918 and 1919 that we had uh, the influenza pandemic, sometimes called the Spanish flu. And of course it was completely devastating to uh, people across the planet. Talk about the the pandemic itself, and then talk about the American response to it uh, here in the States. 
Sure. Well, you probably know it's called Spanish flu because uh, it was first reported in Spanish newspapers in 1918, Spain being a, a neutral country in World War One, it had the capacity to report on it in the way that other European nations engaged in the in the battle didn't. And, and that kind of stuck with it. And I think one of the themes of the book, but also when we're thinking about epidemics, is how they work on a rhetorical level. Uh, so whether it's uh, the, the China virus in terms of how Donald Trump responded to COVID-19 or the Spanish flu in 1918-19, I think there's a stigmatizing element that sometimes sticks to, uh, to, to epidemics. The most persuasive theory is that it started in Haskell County in Kansas in spring 1918, but it wasn't really reported until that autumn when uh, U.S. troops were starting to return from Europe to Massachusetts. So there was a six-month lag, at least, uh, in terms of how the virus was uh, presented to the American public. And I think, I guess if we're thinking about what lessons can be learned, it's you have to respond as quickly as possible. It may have been you know, um, in hindsight, it's easy to say that it may have been impossible to stop the virus mutating and spreading once it had uh, moved from Kansas through uh, um, the armed services to Europe. And, and obviously it went like wildfire, both through U.S. camps in France, but also across the battlefield. So it crops up in Germany and France as well as well as England. Um, so World War One really was the cauldron that really developed uh, the flu pandemic. And had that not happened, you know, it may have just been a, a local crisis that led to, you know, local understanding of how to how to contain a, um, a, a virus rather than the worldwide uh, pandemic that, that it became. Um, one of the things I do in the book is, is focus on leadership and it's interesting that the Surgeon General at the time, Rupert Blue, uh, was really the figurehead. Um, maybe like, you know, Anthony Fauci has been in, in recent years, it wasn't the President um, and it wasn't in, in England, it wasn't the Prime Minister, both of whom contracted flu, but that was disguised from the, the public of the UK and US at the time. It was the Surgeon General in October 1918 set out some plans for trying to contain the virus, but it was largely down to municipalities and, and cities to come up with their own containment strategies at the time. Uh, there wasn't, as we might criticize the, the recent administration, there was no national plan to contain it. There were some public health guidelines, but also a lot of localism in terms of responding to, to the virus. Uh, some cities like New York City, and Atlanta did well in containment, others others less so. Um, in terms of what the government might have done um, other than react more quickly, um, I think it needed to think about um, the way in which uh, stronger coordination between Canada and Great Britain and, and the US could have led to the sharing of best practice. Um, the media had a real uh, role as well in terms of um, spreading the virus like wildfire, not just Spanish flu, but some of the scare stories uh, that we're familiar with today. And that's really where panic sets in rather than a rational response to both containment, but also thinking about, about it from a patient-centered perspective. 
It was quite virulent, very transmissible, although not as transmissible as COVID-19. Um, but really there were um, diff the different types of stories the media could have focused on, um, which would have helped, I think, spread good public health education at the time. So, so you've obviously looked at how the media, with the media then, of course, was newspapers, how they covered it. And to use a modern term, was there disinformation? You mentioned scare stories. That sounds to me like something of a, of a dis or misinformation tactic. Uh, there was, but there was also um, a lot of quite casual reporting, so anecdotal or descriptive. So there wasn't the kind of analysis or uh, lessons that can be learned. There was also a lot of advertising in the media, both around masks, for example, which when I started the book, I didn't think could ever be as politicized as mask wearing has become in the last 12 months. And I took a, a, a photograph uh, that hadn't been published until quite recently, taken by an Oakland photographer um, of a group of Californians wearing masks. Uh, so I was thinking about uh, the politics of mask wearing, but also reading that back into 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 history. Um, there was a sense at the time locally that if you didn't wear a mask, you should go to jail. Uh, and that was one of the, if you look at the inside flap of the book, you'll see that the that's part of the the cover photograph. Um, but there was neither coordination nor was there a variety of perspectives. It tended to be either descriptive or a top-down view of the spread of the, the virus. As I've mentioned, no real reporting on it until the autumn, so six months after it had, had you know, moved from Kansas through Europe and then coming back to the US through Boston in, in, in October. That was when media reporting really took off. And it was October, November of 1918 that the media stories on, on the virus were at their, their height. And that's true of the UK as well. When, when, you, when you think about that experience now, a little bit more than a century ago, does it give you a special insight into the human reaction to, to epidemics and pandemics? Is, is, is what we have experienced now, everybody who's lived through the last couple of years, all that different from the reaction of ordinary Americans and public health officials a century ago? Um, well, I think we have to think about the development of media since since the 1910s. I mean, we, we as we, Wayne said, we're talking about newspaper coverage. It was um, probably the first photographed epidemic, and there was a, uh, an exhibition at the uh, Centre for Disease Prevention Control um, uh, two years ago to mark, mark the centenary, a number of photographs I'd, I'd not seen before. Uh, but obviously, we're thinking about how pandemics spread both in epidemiological terms, but also how they spread um, through um, through the media and the expanded platforms we have today, particularly social media, means that there's a kind of quicker viral spread of, uh, of, of both information, good information and misinformation than we had in the 1910s. So I think we can take lessons, but we have to acknowledge um, media has changed dramatically, probably more than federal politics in, in many ways since that time. So there's lessons that can be learned, but there's also a lot of mileage that we've um, historically moved through in the hundred years since. 
We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend, G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Martin Halliwell a scholar of American studies at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. He's also an author whose most recent book is American Health Crisis, 100 Years of Panic, Planning, and Politics. Professor Halliwell is on Twitter, too, at Manassas17. That's M-A-N-A-S-S-A-S-1-7. So you also write about, coming forward in time, polio, which have afflicted, affected hundreds of thousands of, of American children uh, well into the 50s and 60s and, and even beyond. And there are still people who are living who are affected by it. Why was that a crisis? And, and again, what might the American government or governments, because we're talking about the federal government and local and state, what might they have done differently? Sure. I, I'm of an age where I can recall that, you know, vividly. I was a very young child, but it was it was frightening. And, I, you know, you got your polio shots at school, but Anyway, uh, this is not about my recollections. What could the government have done differently? I mean, polio was literally an uncurable disease until two vaccines came along in the the, the early 50s. And I focus in on uh, the vaccine rollout because I think that was when the federal government made the, the biggest mistake. It led to the resignation of the, the health secretary in 1955. So this is during the Eisenhower administration. But of course, polio goes back to the late 19th century. Um, and we might have said that the uh, research into it could have had better uh, federal level coordination than it had. It tended to be done through uh, university departments. Uh, there was some work through the Rockefeller Foundation as well, uh, but there may have been more uh, coordination. That doesn't necessarily mean that a vaccine could have been found in the the 1910s or, or, or 1930s. But one of the reasons I wanted to look at polio is um, it was a very different, had a very different kind of narrative arc than uh, the influenza pandemic uh, that begins in spring 1918, goes through three waves through to, to spring 1919, and arguably led to a number of uh, post-viral conditions in the 20s. Nevertheless, polio affected numerous American cities, largely in the summer, largely children, but not only that. Um, and it kept, kept, kept popping up. So cities that worked hard on containment, whether it's through um, enforcing anti-spitting laws or whether it's closing swimming pools and, and public spaces um, or stopping children traveling uh, without a clean bill of health, um, and New York City was was exemplary in that way. It, it kept cropping up, um, and all research um, attempts, although 
many of them seemed to be promising in the 20s and 30s, didn't lead to uh, any kind of cure um, until we get to the, the post-war period. The other thing to say, of course, is that President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had polio. He was both a symbol for the nation, um, but also we may say he could have been more honest about it, both in terms of his own affliction, which he hid from public view, um, and also the um, sense that there was, for some children and some adults, there was no recovery narrative. Um, Roosevelt and um, FDR and, and Eleanor received lots of letters from, from children. Some of uh, were quite depressing and dismal, but the, um, the state-level rhetoric about it was either... Um, around sanitation and prevention, or it was around the recovery narrative. So I think there could have been more honesty at the federal level. Um, it's easy to, to again, think about what could have been done better in hindsight, but Roosevelt was, was a supreme symbol of polio. I think there could have been more honesty there. Martin, so, you said something interesting to me. You talked about the, the, the disease narrative around polio is different than the disease narrative around uh, the, the the flu of 1918. Uh, the narrative around HIV AIDS in the 1980s is different than both of those, and there and stigma plays a big a big part of that. Can you explain that to to our audience for us? Sure. I th I think um, of the three um, um, viruses I look at, and and they're all in one chapter, chapter four of the book. So it, it's one type of health crisis I look at rather than all of it obviously it links to to covid and i think it's very important we think about how epidemics play out historically but of those three the 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 influenza pandemic polio and and hiv aids i think the federal government was most culpable when it came to hiv aids there was largely an apathetic response in the reagan administration and when both congress and the administration did start to take notice it tended to be initially seen as um, a problem of gay communities in San Francisco and, and, and New York City, uh, so not a mainstream concern. It was often tied up with ideologies about drug use or family values or um, down to the responsibility of the, uh, of the individual. So there was a lot of scapegoating going on, going on during the time. Um, arguably, Reagan didn't take notice of it until his friend uh, Rock Hudson um, developed HIV/AIDS, and there was a recognition in 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 the mid '80s that something had to be done. Uh, but Reagan didn't have a, a coherent health policy, and it wasn't really until 1986 when the Surgeon General uh, C. Everett Koop uh, wrote an important uh, annual report, which shifted the um, the rhetoric away from AIDS and the stigma attached to AIDS to HIV as, as a virus. Interestingly, he was advised by Anthony Fauci, who was um, a younger man at the time in NIH, um, and Fauci was also important in the 80s for trying to engage with AIDS activist groups like ACT UP, which the government largely ignored or, or stigmatized as being uh, rabble-rousers or, or, or militants. Um, so I, again, I think COVID allowed me to think back to someone like Fauci who 
I guess, was a footnote in the 80s, but plays a really important role in thinking about how both viruses spread in epidemiological terms, but also, you know, how we can be more responsible in responding to them in governmental terms as well. So these are three health crises caused by microbes, but you also not, but you, you get into a different type of health crisis. And really the first part of the book is called geographics of vulnerability. And you talk about the dust bowl, you talk about hurricane Tratina, you talk about water contamination. Of course, Flint, Michigan would be, you know, the, the model example of that. And you talk about nuclear fallout where you live an accident of birth can determine your health. So get into that. I mean, this is an equally important part of this discussion, given especially now where we are with climate change. Sure. I think, um, I mean, very simplistically, you could look at the distance from Congress to where health crises happen. That's not strictly true, of course, although obviously wildfires in California are uh, really important thinking about current public health crises. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be West Coast, but I think a lot of the health crises that we see historically have been ones that uh, both government and Congress would have happily ignored um, until they reach a scale or a magnitude when they can, can no longer ig ignore them. I think one of the key things um, that I learned in terms of doing archive work in uh, a number of presidential libraries is that the federal government um, are often keen not to step in as soon as a crisis reveals itself, because that sets a precedent, which means that every future administration would have to work uh, or react as, as, as quickly. Uh, so the great Mississippi flood of 1927, uh, Coolidge never went to the South. He was slow to respond. And when the administration did respond, it was to send Herbert Hoover his Commerce Secretary to work with the Red Cross in the South to try and ameliorate the, um, the developing health crisis. So I think that's an important part. Part of it is geographical distance. Uh, part of it is um, the, um, the administration in Congress not wanting to step in um, as soon as a, as a crisis reveals itself. Uh, the, the other would be at the intersection of, of um, economics and race. So one of the themes in the second half of the book is to think about how systemic health crises um, are structured, how they reveal themselves through uh, issues that often hide in plain sight, but reveal themselves in episodes like the Flint water crisis, you know, where uh, it was something that um, interestingly, because there was an election year, probably came to more, more to public attention than it would have done had it been in a, a fallow political year. But that really was a crisis that was born out of negligence at the local level, um, but had a longer historical arc at the intersection of, of, of uh, class uh, and, and race, as well as thinking about economic structures more, more broadly. You know, I, I suppose we have to stipulate that that political parties evolve over the century. We're talking about the, you know, the the, the ideology of the Democratic Party has changed at different points over the the arc of that history. The ideology of the Republican Party certainly has too. 
But does ideology play any role in the response of different administrations to different crises, uh, whether it's a, for, whether it's a viral crisis or a geographic crisis or or otherwise, when we're talking about the the last century's worth of American health crises? Uh, to a degree, but what I try and what I don't try and do in the book is to you know single out a particular administration for being being terrible. I've already said what I I feel about the Reagan response to to HIV AIDS, which is not atypical. Um, I think where the Democratic administrations have taken a lead is thinking about the moral valence of what it is to care for the health of a nation. And uh, the midpoint historically in the book uh, is the Johnson administration in the 60s, which really is important for both my chapter on poverty, uh, but also the one thinking about care. Um, and again, I think there's a danger of overplaying how um, important the Johnson administration was for healthcare, because it was really only in the first couple of years that led to the passing of uh, what became Medicare and Medicaid that there were a slew of progressive reforms, uh, involvement in Vietnam, worries about overspending in Congress, led to a scaling down of public works as the Johnson administration went on. But I think more generally, and I think Biden is, is, is in, in that kind of camp, thinking about moral leadership at a federal level, as well as being honest about the way in which crises collide, as, as Biden has called it, where we can't just think about health crises, we have to think about issues about racial, racial and social justice, as well as economics, and obviously in the, the current climate with, with COVID as well. Um, so thinking about crises without using the language of crisis as a smokescreen for either acting uh, irresponsibly or often not acting at all. So it's abundantly clear in your book, and, and we've seen this also, of course, in the current COVID pandemic, that government can play a major role. The private sector is not going to prevent or solve a public health crisis. And yet there are still, even during this pandemic, there are many people in this country who believe government hands off shouldn't be involved. Where does, where does that come from? And it's not universal, of course, it varies state by state and city by city, but there's still that strong, even now, after, after a year and a half of a pandemic that has killed so many and caused so much suffering, there is still that sentiment, government hands off. You What's got about your... a minute for that, uh, Martin, but also maybe just tack onto that, the idea of health citizenship. Sure. Well, health citizenship is one of the strong themes of the book, as well as the historical development and thinking about issues around vulnerability. So I think it's important that uh, we think about how communities can look after themselves, not to give government uh, at state or federal level a free pass, but to think about how resilience can be can work from the bottom up. So taking part in public health debates, um, but also, you know, volunteering at community health centres um, and thinking about those intersections I, I, I spoke about before. Um, one of the things I think if I could rewrite the coda, I, I probably give uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, a, a better press than I, I would have done if I was writing the book now. I think, you know, some of the data that came out about how care homes were 
were treated um, or, or managed uh, during the early part of the crisis. It's the same in the UK as well. There was a lot of um, either lack lack of data or or not sufficient data to give us a, a full sense of how virulent um, the uh, COVID virus was through care homes. Um, so, so I think, again, we need to pause from making ultimate judgments especially uh, with contemporary crises until we see them play out in the longer term. That's where we need to leave it. It's an important point. Martin Hallowell, thank you so much for being with us. The book is American Health Crisis. That's all the time we have this week, but we hope you'll join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.